according to the National Geographic Kids website, the puffer fish can inflate into a ball shape to evade predators. You probably know it as a as a blowfish. They're clumsy swimmers, but they fill they have these elastic stomachs that they fill with huge amounts of water and sometimes air and they blow themselves up to several times their normal size. You've probably all seen pictures of them. Or if you've watched Finding Nemo with your kids, you've seen them. But these blow-up fish aren't just cute. Most puffer fish contain a, a toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish or anything that would eat them. I believe in Japan, once they get that um, poison out, it, they're actually a real delicacy in this, with the sushi, sushi chefs, and uh, you have to have a special license to prepare the puffer fish. Their toxin is deadly to humans, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 human beings. And there's no, the thing about it is there's no known antidote. And like the puffer fish, human beings marred from the perfect image of God because of sin, bent in toward themselves, can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance to make themselves look bigger than they are. Whether those individuals have a natural propensity to be an extrovert or to withdraw within. And this pride can become toxic to marriages, to churches, to friendships. And as one pastor said, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. I want to focus our attention this morning on 1 Peter 5, verses 5-7. through And think about this thought here. That all of us... There is not a one in this room that is exempt because all have sinned and we've come short of bringing honor and glory to our God. All of us wear pride that many times can be very subtle and it brings us farther apart instead of closer to our great shepherd. You might say, well, what does this pride look like? Well, it hurts our passion for God. It has all kinds of manifestations. It dulls us to God. It hurts our oneness as a church, our nearness to one another. It hurts our witness to the lost. It hurts the heart of our Savior who died and rose again for victory over sin and the joy of our souls. It's a cancer to the body of Christ because it says me first over others. I wonder this morning if pride may have exhibited itself in either very uh, overt ways or very subtle ways. Are there people you avoid or never have a conversation with because to do so would mean that you would have to humble yourself. You would have to open up your life to them. But imagine with me a church that's growing more and more in Christ and being less interested in our own interest and consumed with bringing God glory by serving one another with the powers God has given them. It is a beautiful thing. The tricky thing about humility is, is as soon as you think you have it, you don't, right? And 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us what God thinks about humility, the high value He places on it, and a society that simply screams louder and louder, be yourself. Broadcast yourself. You be you, which has some tones of truth to it, 
but at the same time is really trying to put yourself above others. What you'll see in this passage here are a few insights. We'll be working through 1 Peter chapter 5, um, verses 1 through 7 for some time now. And we saw in verse 1 several weeks ago here that Peter sees his identity, he sees the root of who he is as being in Christ. Being in Christ. Dead to self, alive to righteousness through Christ. He says, the elders which are among you in the context here is these pastors among these churches that are scattered throughout metaphorical Babylon here that are, that are trying to learn how to maneuver here in a difficult situation in time when Nero will be the emperor and persecution will start to increase and the Christian movement here that began through the birth of the church at Pentecost here will begin to experience a lot of pressure. And Peter knows that in order for them to thrive in Babylon, they need faithful shepherds. They need pastors, elders here who are, who are committed to the Word of God and who are ministering in the, right, in the right way and the right reasons. But the very first thing they need to understand is what Peter understood as an elder among them, that they are rooted in Christ first of all. That the circumstances of their lives might change, but the reality is that their, their, their walk and who they are in Christ and who God has declared them to be in Christ is a permanent reality. And so he says, the elders are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So he reminds them of the cross of Christ as their anchor, but he also gives them a future orientation about the, the point of all of this. That we're simply not just only saved from sin, but we're saved to God forever. And then he gives them their task and he tells them to minister, minister for the right reasons. He says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint or compulsion, but willingly. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Not for the idea of gain. That's not to be the thing that drives you. Rather, an eagerness needs to drive you. And then thirdly, not as being a dictator over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock leading through your life. And it reminds him in verse 4, again, the reward that will come when we labored in these verses over the past few weeks. And now we get to verse 5. Likewise, younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject to one another, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The word there, younger, is the idea of those that are new. Probably referring to those who would be new to the faith. There are different words he could use uh, in the Greek language for those who are age younger, but he uses a word, those that are new. And those that are coming in the, into, into the body of Christ through the, these churches scattered throughout Cappadocia, Asia Minor here, and had seen the sincerity and authenticity and the hope that these believers had had in faith. They had seen some fruit. They had seen some people come to Christ. They seemed some, some new believers that they were, they were to strengthen, that they were to grow. And he reminds those that are, that are new, he says, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. The word elder there is actually plural, elders. And in keeping with the context here, he's talking about this, that we are to put ourselves under the shepherds. Put yourselves under the church's shepherds. And the theme of these verses really is 
In the negative sense, we could say, set pride aside and put on humility. Set pride aside. Well, how do we set pride aside? The very first thing is put yourself under the church's shepherds. The shepherds of the church here. Not chafe against or be stubborn or resistance. Resistant, and, and it's the idea of, again, again of humility that there is a choice to come under to heed the counsel of the Word of God. And sometimes in our society we hear that word submission and we hear that word of, of coming under in authority and we've moved the pendulum too far and we begin to have these reactions against it. But there's a difference between biblical submission and subjugation. Explain that. Subjugation turns a person into a thing. It destroys who you are as an individual. It removes liberty. But submission is the idea of coming under an authority to become the person more and more of what God wants you to be. It gives you the freedom to accomplish what God has for you in your life and ministry. Subjugation, that dictatorship there in verse 3 there, is weakness. It's a refuge for those who are afraid of growing and maturity. But submission is actually a strong thing. And it's really, honestly, the first step toward true maturity and ministry. And what he's reminding these new believers is, They can't be led by their shepherds if they're not humble, if they're not teachable. Because like all of us as sheep, we are prone to what? We're prone to wander, the songwriter says. We need shepherds. And so here he's telling them to put themselves on the church of shepherds. And one way you can do that is pray for, encourage the shepherds. Um, And and the reason you can, you could, uh, there's a reason that it is a, a certain group of people who are shepherds. I want you to think about this here. God has them undergo evaluations of their life and character. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, right? There are certain things that they need to meet the requirements of in order to serve as faithful shepherds. Secondly, He also has them undergo an evaluation of their abilities. He says they they need to be able to teach able to to expound the Word of God because that's how sheep will grow when they're fed here. And um, he he uh, he also reminds them of what uh, overseers, uh, church uh, elders, pastors do. Um, they have certain tasks that they are to do. But he also has them undergo an evaluation of motives. That's what the the, the first verses in First Peter five are about. And so their motive is to be, as Colossians one says, as to prevent their 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 folks in their congregation faultless to Christ. Faultless to God. That's to be their motivation. Hebrews 13 tells us their motivation uh, as, you, as you submit to the shepherding leadership. The, the motivation is that they can present you to God at the judgment seat and that they may do it with joy and not with grief because that's unprofitable for you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about his ministry among the Thessalonians and he talks about how, how uh, we, we nursed you as a mother nurses her children. We were firm with you as a father is to be firm with his children. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he tells them to admonish those who are over you and esteem their work highly in the Lord for the Lord's sake. In other words, the point is, if a shepherd's goal is to please Jesus, then you should put yourself under the church's shepherds. The other angle of coming at this here is that it's no accident. God's not a God of accidents. He put you in a flock. 
He put you uh, under shepherds and he's arranged and he's planned this and this is for your good. And so there needs to be a relationship. If verses 1 through 4 are, this is how responsible shepherding should be, then verse 5a here is how is the response to that. You might be thinking, okay, I know I need to be under my church's shepherds, but what about the people around me? That's the big thing. That's what bugs me. Well, look what he says here. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. The second insight I think we see from 1 Peter chapter 5 is we are to put ourselves in service to one another. This is how a church in Babylon thrives. Putting others first and highly valuing them. Seeking the joy of others. Did you ever do something for somebody and you saw their eyes light up? Just brought, it brought an energy and a spark to their life because you went under them to lift them up. Pride says, do this for me. Humility says, do this for their joy in the Lord. I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, that it is kind. How can an individual be kind when they're not even, might, might not even be treated kindly? It only, that love in 1 Corinthians 13 only comes out of the soil of humility. Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2 to, to uh, share the need of the Philippians. He roots it in what Jesus has done for us in his humility. But to, 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 to the point of the, of the passage is that this is how the church needed to be to one another. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, If there be any hope, any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels or compassions and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. And if we left it there, that sounds pretty abstract, right? sounds idealistic. But here's how this happens. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, empty conceit. But, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And to make it very clear that this is an impossible task that has to come from Jesus, he says the very next verse. Let this mind be in you, which was what? Also in Christ Jesus. That's comforting. And he lays out how Jesus did this. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 about the foundation that the church is built on. And he says, I urge you, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation where you are called. These tremendous, high, exalting things of who the church is and Jesus Christ that He has laid out in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. A habitation of God through the Spirit. And he says in verse 2, Okay, how do you walk worthy of this? This is the thing you've got to fight for. This is the thing you've got to put your foot down about. Verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, I asked the world this morning, I, pulled, I, I went down Rockland Main Street, and I pulled uh, those who were um, walking down Main Street, and I said, what is greatness to you? 
Very few of them would say a lowliness and meekness and a long-suffering and putting up with people, forbearing one another in love. And endeavoring, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, why would Paul have to tell them that in order to walk worthy of the calling, we have to be a church who is who has a oneness in Christ and a church who um, uh, endeavors, fights to keep the unity? Why would he have to tell them that? And why would he have to tell them that they needed to forbear one another, be long-suffering? Because everybody was just like everybody, and everybody had these wonderful personalities with no flaws. No. Because he wanted this to grow in the soil of humility. Because it's the soil of humility that God's glory is, is, is built up and is displayed to the world in a fantastic way in love. God's arranged this. And so, put yourself in service to one another. He says in verse 5 again, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed in humility. Um, this is to happen with moms and dads and siblings to each other and kids to parents and, and generations in church. In their book, Mistakes Were Made, but not by me, social psychologists uh, Carol Tavris and Ellie Aronson described how a fixation on our own righteousness can choke the life out of love. They write this, and I'm sure we've all seen this in our own families and relationships at different levels. The, ma- the vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner, and this is the vast majority, not every, there's... Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. In other words, these are, in the secular world, these are psychologists agreeing that the problem in relationships, at the root of it, is us wanting to put ourselves up above others. Jesus' church doesn't struggle with that, right? I sometimes receive um, insights from people um, that are sometimes complaints about other people. And I have to remind them that it's about Jesus, not me and you. Um, maybe it was a song that was too slow. Just didn't strike your little heart hammer. Or maybe it was a song that was too fast. Or maybe it was a song that was too old. Or maybe it was a song that was too new. And I have to remind them, maybe that song wasn't for you. It was from someone else in this room who really needed that. That's a small sampling. There's a lot of other things. Those seem to be things that we're fighting, we're facing. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter already about how to arm ourselves with the proper thinking. He's told us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 
22, seeing you have purified your souls. This has happened to you. You're, you're, you've received the gospel and obeying the truth through the Spirit to unfeigned, sincere love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. And he says, because you're born again by the Word of God. And in chapter 2, he has he is, he is, he is, uh, repeated these things as well. He says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, that's evil intent for people, all guile, the deceitful ways we speak of others, hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow, thereby so you've tasted the Lord is gracious. He's told us these are the things to put off. These are the things... To put on, he has um, told us in chapter three of difficult situations in marriage relationships and the oneness that God intends to be there, and your part you can play in that. He's told us in verse chapter three, verse eleven: Let him hate evil and do good; let him seek peace and pursue it. He's told us in chapter four about a right perspective when things, when people treat you wrongly and you come into contact with enemies and pressures. And now in chapter five, he's reminding us again that we're to put ourselves in service to one another. Now, notice what he says in verse five: Submit yourselves to the other. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Put on the clothes of humility is what he's saying. And he's probably hearkening back to the supreme example of this, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a servant in John chapter 13. And that, and that, and that Lord's Supper, that last night before Jesus was crucified, disciples are sitting around the table, they're waiting for someone to wash their feet, Right? That's what you did when you walked in sandals and dust and animal refuse was on the streets. It would be nice to have clean feet before you eat so that stuff wouldn't be sticking to your feet and smelling up the room. And if you're to walk in that room, when Jesus put on the towel and He went around each of the disciples' feet and started washing their feet, and you didn't know who these people were. You just saw this man going around with a towel, washing the disciples' feet. What would you assume about that man? That he was the lowliest in the room. That he was the slave. And so he was. You see, a slave would, would be clothed. He would, he, would, he, would, he would tie or tuck the long outer garments of his robe into his belt here. And he would put on an apron. A slave's apron. It marked him out as this is the one who's going to serve us. This is the one who's going to do stuff for us. And Peter here is saying, put on that slave apron. Put this on. Because when you put on humility and you serve others and you put yourself in service to one another, you put other people ahead of you, above you, guess what? It makes all the other virtues workable. It's like the key and the ignition. The car might have all the features, right? It might be able to go all over the country. It might have all kinds of wonderful bells and whistles. None of them matter until you put the key in and turn it on. And he's saying, this is the one that makes everything else workable. Humility. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, without this love, without this service here, sacrifice, we are what? We're just clanging cymbals. Obnoxious. Well, you're probably thinking how hard this is for Christians. And I'm glad you have. 
Because the scripture tells us how God helps in this, in the next verses. And the third point is to put yourself in the powerful hand of the attentive shepherd, capital S. Look what he says in verse 5. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. They are opposed by God. You can think of when God gave the curse to the serpent in Genesis 3. He made him crawl on his belly in the dust. Humble yourself or you will be humbled, right? The idea there of, of, of being opposed by God, it's a military term. And it's the idea of He will call out His armies. The proud put themselves above. Notice, with that negative comes a positive and gives grace to the humble. He's quoting from Proverbs 3, verse 34. There is a blessing of kindness to the humble. That word humble, it referred to a river when it was at its low stage in drought times. And you can think of the Nile River. If you remember back in world history, Egypt's Nile River, they really depended on it. It went up and down, and there were different stages. Over the, It would over, overflow and flood the plains, and then provide some rich soil. And then there were times where it would really shrink down and they would have to irrigate. And what he's saying is the humble are the Nile River at the low stage. They run low. They take a low place before God. It's pictured like this. Benjamin Franklin visited one of the most famous New England preachers in our day in Massachusetts. His name was Cotton Mather. And Franklin writes about a lesson that he learned one day when he was visiting Cotton Mather. He writes, he was showing me out of the house and there was a very low beam near the the doorway. I was still talking when Mather began shouting, Stoop! Stoop! I didn't understand what he meant and I banged my head at the beam. You're young, he said, and had the world before you. Stoop as you go through it and you will avoid many hard thumps. That advice has been very useful to me, I avoided many misfortunes by not carrying my head too high in pride. What God is saying in this verse is this. The only, there's no antidote to the blowfish, remember? But there is an antidote to pride, which is even more poisonous than the blowfish. And it is this, it is the grace, the undeserved kindness of God. And we receive that grace when we yield ourselves to Him. And the evidence of that grace is that we yield to one another. At 9.04 a.m. on September 2nd, 1945, above the battleship USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, World War II officially ended. BJ Day. Signing on behalf of Emperor Hirohito, the Japanese foreign minister inked his signature to the document declaring Japan's complete, unconditional surrender to the Allied powers. And you know what followed after that. Japan became occupied by the Allied powers who helped them rebuild. And they were, they were uh, tutored in this. And Japan emerged from the ashes of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Recovery was slow, but it was steady. And through time, Japan became one of the most uh, powerful, productive, uh, peaceful countries in the world. But it had to take the step of placing itself at the mercy of prevailing powers, that allowed Japan to begin to grow again. The Japanese military and government had to completely give up to lay down its arms to accept surrender with no conditions. And this is how it is with us. 
God resists the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. And then He says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore. The point of all of this is this. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Go under the mighty hand of God. Because submission is an act of faith. We're trusting God to direct in our lives and work out His purposes in our time that is always going to be contrary to natural human thinking. After all, we know that there's a danger in submitting to others. There's a risk you take, right? They might take advantage of you. But in all of these things, submitting to the shepherds, submitting to one another, what Peter says is this. The root of all this is your heart's disposition to God. When you submit to God, then these other things can fall into place. So he's kind of working backwards here. Because a person who's truly yielded to God and wants to serve his fellow Christians would not think of taking advantage of someone else, right? The mighty hand of God that directs our lives, He can also use to direct in the lives of others. And friends, there is no safer place than submitting yourself under the mighty hand of God. The devil says it's dangerous, don't do it. It's risky, it's not worth it. Adam and Eve had to learn the hard way, right? But if they would have submitted themselves under the mighty hand of God in that temptation, they would have received more blessing. There's no safer place. What does it mean to put yourself under the mighty hand of God? That kind of sounds vague. It means that it is an under, utter dependence on His grace and mercy. It is trusting Him completely. It is not living in fear, but in faith. Friends, what are your other options? What else can you depend on that is so sure? And look at the reward here. And He will lift you up in due time. He will lift you up. And verse 7, He builds on this and says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. So He says, Throw your anxieties on to God. That verb cast, it's a pretty strong one. It means this. It means to pick up everything that is bothering you. Everything that's weighing you down and fling it on God's back. Because He has the strong enough shoulders to carry it. And not only is He sufficient for it, He is delighted to do so. He loves you, after all. He cares for you. So all your anxieties or worries, all, the whole of your worries, come to the place where you can cast the whole of your worries on Him. And the result is, Peter says, when they come up again, You will not need to worry because someone else is holding them. That word cast is the idea of a once and for all thing. You don't cast it and then keep... I'm going to take that one back on me, God. I don't know if you can handle this. Once and for all, for you are His concern. Because here's here's the crux of it. Unbelief and worry is a serious form of pride. Because what it is doing, it is exalting yourself and your concerns above the one who is sufficient. Friends, God is more concerned about our welfare than we could possibly be. And He uses our circumstances in His shaping and He has it under control and in His care. One pastor writes of a little boy whose mom had died who was especially sad and lonely at night. 
And he come into his father's room and asked if he could sleep with his father. And even then, sleeping next to his father in the same bed, he couldn't rest until he knew that not only was he, that, that he was with his father, but that his father's face was facing toward him. And he would ask in the dark, Father, is your face turned toward me now? His father would say, yes. You are not alone. I am with you. My face is turned toward you. When that boy was assured of that, he went to sleep. Casting all your care, your worries, your anxieties upon him. Because he has turned his face upon you in Christ. He has not withheld all good things from you. The Lord is a shield. He is your protector. And He is your provider. You can rest. You can serve. You can put yourself under others. He's got this. He's going to build His church. He's going to build your life in relation to that. So in summary, what do we learn how to do from Peter? Well, we're aware aware of the problem that he brings out, that we wear subtle pride that can bring us farther apart instead of closer to our great shepherd. But God commands us, because of his provision, to humbly put ourselves under the church's shepherds, put ourselves in service to one another, and put ourselves in the powerful hand of the attentive shepherd. Wear the clothes of humility and trust the lifting hand of God who really cares. Let's pray.